Welcome to the Farcast here at Shadron State College. I am Daniel Binkert with my co-host Alex Helmbrecht, probably the Alex Helmbrecht at this point, since I pulled that on you last. I'm week. not. I'm not the only one. There's another one. He he lives in Indiana. Is there? Yeah, I googled. I googled my name at oh. one point in time, and yeah. <laughs> Well, he's in a band, so maybe yeah. maybe you guys could play together sometime. He might be the one. There's a there's a Missouri Daniel Binkert, I think, but uh, it's like no, there's only one Daniel. <laughs> we can never be in the same place, or uh, Earth will collapse oh, it will. in itself, or something. I feel like gone off on an awful tangent <laughs> yeah. here. So we we're joined by Allison Fritz, who's very patiently waiting for us to introduce her, uh, associate professor of humanities here at CSC, and welcome to the Farcast. All right, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, glad to have you here. So let's see here. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your educational path. Um, I grew up in the far, far northeastern corner of Tennessee. Okay. Um, so not a lot of people are familiar with that part of the country, um, or at least some people who are not from there are not, they don't realize that, that that's actually where the mountains are at. Um, so that's where I grew up in Southern Appalachia. Okay. Um, and uh, it's a really cool place. Um, I didn't know that when I was growing up. Uh, it wasn't until I left, <laughs> actually left and went far away to graduate school that I realized how unique of a place it is. Um, it's unique in that um, the original um the original recordings that kind of kicked off, like what we call the birthplace of country music, which is not Nashville, it's Bristol, um, right. uh, Tennessee, um, which is the town next to the one I grew up in, Kingsport, Tennessee, um, that those were all recorded there. And so you have a whole bunch of like a, like an epicenter for music there. Um, the Carter family is from um, a little holler across the state line in Virginia called um, Hilton's. And um, and so that's Carter. That's like um, June Carter Cash, right? Mm -hmm. Johnny Cash's wife. Okay. So they actually owned a home. Uh, Never actually sure where it was at. I guess that was the point, right? Um, but the <laughs> yeah. but the Carters still lived up there in Hilton's, and they owned this barn that was built into the side of a hill, and they have old time music every Saturday night. And so, you know, we either went to the mall to wander around as you did back in the '90s, um, or to the Carter family fold um, to go listen to these you know, musicians and do clogging dancing. And never once did I think of this as being bizarre or weird at all. <laughs> just <laughs> and, a normal day. No, just a normal awesome. upbringing. Yeah. So like Ralph Stanley, uh, who I don't think a lot of people knew about until the Oh Brother Where Art Thou movie came out and he's on that soundtrack. But like he came and did workshops, you know, in my middle school orchestra class and stuff. Again, things wow. I didn't recognize. Um, I actually had Johnny Cash come in to the Perkins when I was a graveyard waitress there um, in my hometown. He would come in several times. He'd come in early in the morning and kind of the middle of the night. Um, now that I did at least recognize as weird. Um, and I got to see him play for $5 at that barn. That's so, great. Yeah. So now I heard you use the word holler. And what is a holler? It is like a valley. Okay. Um, but it's a valley... In the in between two mountain ridges, okay. so not in between two mountains, but in between two mountain ridges, you gotta like picture the like the Appalachian Mountains and how they've got these long tops. You know, they're not peaky, and then they have ridges that come down them, and then right. those eventually make their way to flatter areas, and and so those are called hollers because they're much smaller valleys. Um, and in some of them, in certain places, you know, like I have a friend who's got a cabin right outside of Hilton's who, like, sunlight hits that cabin maybe five hours of the day because of wow. the way that the yeah. sun is moving across there. You know, you've got these super high 
sides on of the mountain on either side. Okay. Um, so that's what it is. Yeah, not a lot of people know what a, a hollow or a holler is. So I wondered like, if it was along those lines. All right, good. I learned something new today. Yeah, I thought it was. <laughs> I had the same question. I thought it was like a town, like just like the next town over. Ah. I thought it was like a Tennessee term, but no, it's a it's a geographical term. Um, All right. And so people will use it as a way to describe things. So like if you're going into Hilton, like my friend, when I was tr- trying to figure out where his cabin was the first time I went up there, he said, "Well, after you go through Hilton's." It's the second hauler, you know, like, so you just keep going on this road. And I knew exactly what he meant. You know, there was one divide and then there was the next divide Mm -hmm. and that's where his was at. So, yeah, because there was nothing in the first one. So it doesn't mean that there's anything there. It's just a geographical formation. Cool. I would have been lost. (laughs) (laughs) So question of the day was, was Johnny Cash a good tipper? He was an okay tipper. Um, I mean, he, to, for, yes, he was a great tipper. If you think about what he was getting, he was just getting coffee. He rarely got anything else. He'd just sit oh. there and he'd just sit there and write music, you yeah. know? Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. cool. But I've got to be very honest about the fact that the first time he sat in my section, I was too terrified to serve him. <laughs> um, and then that's stupid. Well, yeah, like, he's kind of a bigger than life. Yeah, exactly. Though. Like, you know, 44 year old me now wants to slap 19 year old me. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Say like, what were, I guess I was 20 at the time. Yeah. Be like, what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you go out there? Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, he's a very friendly man. And a lot of the stories around my town and all the surrounding towns is about how super friendly and nice of a human being he is. But I, I was like, what do you say to the man in black? No, and then the the wait the other waitress was like, "Can I get your order?" I don't know. <laughs> what do you say? What are you talking about? You're playing a role here. <laughs> oh wow, that that's so cool though to have like yeah. that that front door, or you know, like a a really great seat to to things like that. That's yeah, certainly unique. That doesn't necessarily manifest itself in Western Nebraska. All the no, time, so. yeah, and a lot of the traditional American folk music, um, not bluegrass, mind you. That's not what I'm talking about. It's called old time, which is proto bluegrass. Um, a lot of those songs, which a lot of them came over from Ireland and Scotland and England, but that they just, I don't know how to describe it besides that they're just like in the air Mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, later in my twenties and thirties, and when I started playing with people and people who were not from my area, they would be so surprised when they would start to play something. I'm like, Oh, I know that. Or I know that. Or I know the lyrics to something like, how do you know that? And I couldn't tell them when and where I just knew it. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. That was one of those songs. Osmosis. Yeah, yeah. it was just, just in the air. So tell us, what was your education like? You, you mentioned that you were oh, in yeah. Tennessee until graduate school? Uh, yeah, essentially. So I went to the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, which is actually in the far southeastern side of the state. So it's uh, um, just further south, but a very different environment. Um, uh, not as mountain. There's still mountains there. Um, larger city, more like the deep south. Very, very hot. Um and um, so that's where I got my undergrad. And then I stuck around for a couple years after um, graduating. I didn't really quite know what to do. Actually, thought about becoming a professional yoga instructor, <laughs> like, uh, which is funny because at yeah. the time I thought it wouldn't have taken me anywhere. But this was right before it, it became a thing, yeah, you know, absolutely. and now I laugh at that because <laughs> I'm like, well, you went for philosophy, professor. Um, I'd have actually done well. And I don't know if I'd gotten <laughs> in that early. Um, and uh, so and then I just applied to my a, master, a bunch of master's programs. And I only did master's because I didn't know if I wanted to do graduate mm-hmm. school. I just thought, well, I'll try it out. It only takes like two years, you know, in the humanities. And then if I really like it, then I'll, I'll get my Ph.D., 
And I got into the University of Wyoming. And so that's where I went, which is a totally different culture, but also a really cool place. Mm-hmm. And I was there um, for three years. I Because I liked it so much, I didn't want to leave. I spent a, a third year. I applied to a program there to get a certification in environment and natural resource management, um, which is how I got into environmental ethics, which is what my specialty is. Right. But then I moved back to Chattanooga for two more years because I really liked Chattanooga. <laughs> and then I applied to PhD school and I got into the University of Nebraska link. Well, I got into several places, but they gave me the most money. So that's where I ended up going. Okay. So, so you, you were kind of in the South in Tennessee and then certainly Midwest and, and Western states with yep. Wyoming. So, yep. um, when you mentioned the University of Wyoming, um, it made me think of a another of a professor I know there. I think he's still there. Uh, kind of has a couple different specialties like you do. He is a, an entomologist, but he's, teaches. He was my director of my Jeff thesis. Lockwood. Yeah. Oh man, he's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a yeah. I, well, I'll uh, put in a shameless plug for his book Prairie Soul that um, anyone listening to this should read because it's a, a, it's well worth your time. Well, I've read some of his other ones. I've read the one on locusts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like he had yeah, just... Yeah, probably right up your alley. Yeah. Yeah. And he had just actually joined. He would, was, would teach a random philosophy class, but then he got so important at the university, I think he could just do whatever he wanted to do. Um, that's after he did dream. all of that amazing research and grasshoppers and, and swarming and locusts. Yeah. And so he decided he wanted to join the philosophy department full time as well as English because that's when he was publishing books. So they kind of gave him this free-floating position. So he was an outside reader, my outside reader for my thesis. Um, and then when he came to the department my third year, I just switched him to being my director. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, great guy. He taught at the uh, creative... Sorry, that's my phone. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> He's, he taught at the Story Catcher Workshop a few years ago here yep. in Chattern. He so. did. Yeah, I saw that. And then um, uh, when he has guest spoken at, um, uh, I guess it's Teresa's class, with that she co-teaches with um, oh with Matt home with on Matt. the range yeah 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 when he's come in I've come in like a couple times just to be, and he I didn't even say I was gonna be there it was like my first year here and he just saw me on the owl cast whatever somehow in the back of the room and ca- called out like I see Doctor <laughs> Fritz back there <laughs> that's great all right um, well, we talked about music okay. So how did you end up at Shadron State, and what do you teach here? I teach, well, I teach philosophy, and I ended up here. I'm thinking this is in my backpack. Um, I ended up here because I applied. Uh, <laughs> it's a straightforward <laughs> path, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that was a dumb question, right, uh, Alex? People, I don't know, I, that question, like, where are you? Where would you like to end up? You know, when people ask you that, and you're in academia, unless you are a freaking superstar, that is just a stupid question, because I don't even want to dream where I'm going to end up, you know, because we don't have a choice. You just go where you get a position. And I had done some guest, whatever you call it, visiting assistant professorships, um, and I was at Auburn. And I had a five-year gig there, so I could have stayed. Um, but I was applying out. I gotten pretty close in a couple positions, and I wasn't going to apply. Uh, like, I wasn't even looking anymore And um, for that year. And then just happened to get on the Job for Philosophers page and saw the ad for Shadron. So just quickly, since I'm, you know, very organized and had all my materials, like, you could, like, hobble oh, it sure, together sure. and turn it in. And didn't think that much of it because it was so late in the season. And then got... Uh, 
um, a phone interview, which I have to say I didn't prepare for like I had for all the other ones, you know, because <laughs> it was just, it was kind of, you know, it was like the end of the semester and I was very busy. But then they immediately wanted me to come and fly out. So I came came out and uh, and did like it on my visit and then was offered the job and gladly took it because I, I had been right. in smaller town, you mm-hmm. know, small town. So that that part didn't scare me at all. And how long have you been here now? This is my fifth year. Wow, time flies. Mm-hmm. Does. So what about philosophy appeals to you? Oh, gosh, you know, I just really like that form of critical thinking. Um, it's a form of abstract thinking, of possible worlds is what we call them, constantly imagining the way the world is not, but it could possibly be, and then analyzing what implications there might be if that were the case, and then what would have to change for the world to become closer to whatever your possibility is and thinking about justification and how we know things. And um, so I guess how I initially got into it, because I'm one of these weirdos who I declared my major um, the minute I showed up at college and never changed. So I just came in as a philosophy major and you're like, (laughs) yeah, 20 something years later, here I am, you know? Um, And, uh, and part of it was because I took a philosophy class in high school, which I know in the nineties is not normal. Um, And I took it because, well, it sounded cool, right? Philosophy does sound cool. It's what Mm -hmm. people often take classes. Yeah, we didn't have that class in my high school. Yeah, yeah, right. I didn't think of that as like a college credit thing. Yeah, no, it wasn't that. It was seriously just, you know, a high school class. It was the second year I think it was offered that I took it, and it was also my favorite um, teacher there who I had taken German with and taken AP um, European history with. So I also wanted to take another class with him. What size of high school was this? Uh, About... At the time I was there, about 1,800, so pretty large. Oh, that's why yeah, we didn't have that in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Small yeah. School. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a town of only of 36,000, but they just had one high school. Mm. So that means you have a very large high school. Okay. Yeah. And also there's an engineering f- firm there in Kingsport uh, that was Eastman Kodak, but now it's just called Eastman. It's like a chemical firm that mm-hmm. employs a large amount of the town, but it means you bring in a lot of people with degrees from other areas who make very high demands of the education system. Nice. And I was definitely, uh, you know, a, a beneficiary of that that yeah. aspect of my town because uh, my dad did not work for them. My dad actually worked for the coal mines. Um, so, uh, whoa, it was like, oh, philosophy. So then this class, and it blew my mind. Like, it was like something clicked, you know. It was all these things that we went over. It was so easy for me, you know, like mm. just so easy and fun. And I loved all the readings. And he'd give us extra readings because we were in the South and they told him he couldn't give us Nietzsche. And so he'd just like photocopy Nietzsche and live it on the end of his desk. And so I was like <laughs> taking all this stuff home and reading more stuff, you know. Um, and there were a couple problems that they, he brought up that were things that I had thought before. You know, and I thought I was the only person who thought that. Like, um, turns out when I teach this in my classes, there's there is a fair amount of students who've had this thought. Like, I'd say about ten percent in every class, and it's this thing called the inverted spectrum, which is I had this theory as a little kid that everybody actually had the same favorite color. Um, that is, uh, phenomenologically, they had the same favorite color. So, when I said my favorite color was green, what I was seeing as green was what my sister was seeing when she said purple, because that was her favorite color. And that would explain mm. the wide variations in favorite colors, right? Is, and, then, and then I realized that there was actually no way to confirm this, that there's no way to know what other people are seeing. Right. And then that goes for all kinds of things. And then I was trying to figure out ways in which you could maybe confirm it and thinking about like, well, 
green is a cool color, but then if you think about the way that we describe um, our colors, like the metaphorical words we used to describe them, those would also have been stably attached to whatever phenomenological experience people mm -hmm. were having, and so there still wouldn't be a way to check that. And then I go into philosophy, and it turns out, like, this has been going on for hundreds of years that they brought this up. Like, <laughs> yeah. did you ever think about this, you know? Uh, and then the riddle of induction was another thing that just completely blew my mind, which is the idea that everything that we know, not, not that we know, most of the reasoning that we engage in is called inductive reasoning, which is engaging from or reasoning from instances of experiences to then patterns. And then we then go from patterns back to those experiences. But these are things just like gravity, you know, gravity works. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like you drop things and they fall to the ground. And so you just see this pattern and then you just accept that as being your reality or that, that time always moves forward would be another example. Um, but if you think about why we think that's the case and you go, why does induction work? Why is it that induction as a method of reasoning works? Then you'll realize it's because it's always worked for you in the past, which is just induction. So you're using induction to justify induction, which seemed cool enough to me. And then I took a philosophy class, and there they show you that that right there is, is a circularity problem, and it could mean that you know nothing. So that's what David Hume thought. He was mm -hmm. like, well, here's a weird riddle, you know, and then it was realizing that like, oh, wait, you can't prop up a system of logic with that system of logic. Like you can't do that. Um, but we do. <laughs> you yeah, know. Yeah. And then, yeah, so philosophy is all about that, about making you believe you know nothing in order to then start to try to believe things. To try to find that, I suppose, that capital T truth. Yeah, I guess. If it exists. If it exists. <laughs> yeah. Or is it, is it um, getting rid of all the bad habits yes. in terms of thinking? That's the better way to put it. You oh, know, okay. I'm still going to rely on induction, yeah. but I think it's really important that I understand what's going on when I'm doing it um, because it makes me a much better reasoner. And if people would do that more often, then a lot of our prejudices would go away as well. Sounds like a lifelong project for, for some <laughs> of us. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, let's uh, go from there into environmental ethics. And it, would that be some inductive? I'm going down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> just thinking in terms of where things are headed or where they seem to be headed. Environmental ethics seems like a very important thing right now. I think it was important 30 years ago. That's true. <laughs> uh, and here we are. I know. So tell us about environmental ethics. At this point in time, it feels a little on the nihilistic side. <laughs> <laughs> or um, Chicken Little, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, <laughs> uh, I got into it um, in my master's program again. Um, and uh, it, it just fit it turns out, I mean, part of it is that my dad worked for the coal mines. It seemed like a very good fit because my dad was, you know, like he did eventually actually, you know, head mines and whatnot because that was when the coal mining industry was collapsing in the 90s. But he got his job initially in the 80s as being a reclamation specialist, like a person who goes into strip mines and then tries to reclaim the land because they have to pay people to do that. Um, and then also doing water testing and all this other stuff, you know. So he was like one of two people in their environmental quality department for this massive corporation in, in Virginia. Um, and so it seemed like it was a natural fit, but I, you know, being um, a rebel didn't want to do it because why would you do what everybody expects you to do? And so I didn't want to do it until I TA'd for one of the best professors I've ever actually witnessed in, in, in action teaching a lady named Susanna Gooden at the University of Wyoming. And I TA'd for her for environmental ethics 
and then I couldn't deny it any longer. Like everything in that book, I was like four steps ahead of it, you know, where I was like already thought through all of these problems, you know, and I was like, oh, you're already doing it. Um, so I also really like environmental ethics because I just like applied philosophy. I think, I mean, you know, all that stuff about thinking about inductive reasoning is fun and all and logical puzzles, but I like it where philosophy touches the ground. And so, you know, you can't do environmental ethics without actually having an understanding of the natural world. So it requires an empirical base of knowledge. And I, I really enjoyed that fact because then I'm like, you know, doing theory while reading environmental impact statements and things like that because it matters the way the world is. That's And that's part of the reason why I like it so much. Great. Yeah. Do you get to teach any courses at CSC kind of built around environmental ethics? I do. I do teach an environmental ethics class. It has not been that popular, and I don't know why. Mm. I don't know if it needs to be named something else. Sometimes it's all about branding. Yeah, uh, yeah, it could be. Uh, yeah, because um, I've tried that with several of the several of my classes. Like, I decided to name philosophy of gender, philosophy of gender, because I thought feminism was a word that would scare people away. Um, and so maybe environmental ethics needs to be something less hippy-dippy sounding. I don't know. <laughs> it would be more popular. But I do teach it because it's my specialty, and I'm very hard on myself when it comes to teaching that class, and maybe it's because it is my little baby. Um, so I always feel like I could do better. But but I don't do that. I don't judge myself the same way when I teach other things, and my students love those other classes. Sure, so I don't know what's sure. going on there. And I'm trying to next semester, uh, not trying to, it's on the books. We'll see if it makes. Um, it's a brand new class that's called um, Philosophy on the Range, and it will involve environmental ethics, but it will be very, very, very specific to this area. But not just environmental ethics. It will be many questions because I like to look at politics politics of place, aesthetics. That's yeah. actually my dissertation is in environmental ethics, but I, it's also in, in environmental aesthetics. Could you explain that a little further? Environmental aesthetics is just um, what value um, visually, not just visually, sound, but um, the, the natural world has. And that's going to be separate from other values, so not from prudential values, pragmatic values, values that we need for living, clean water, but that it can be pretty, you know. Okay. And I don't like to use the word pretty because a lot of people define aesthetics, you know, as like, oh, it's the philosophy of beauty or the study of beauty. It's not. It's also that a study of the of the grotesque and of the sublime, which if you, if you look at the original understanding of the sublime is supposed to be terrorizing. Mm. Um, so sublimity involves terror or fear, according to Kant. But it's that, you know, like the yeah. grand, grandness of large mountains and, and things like that and trees and, and the visual effects of the world around us. Um, because I argue that that is something that is ignored often in environmental assessments that the government uses and that if they did incorporate it, they would actually have more t like uptake in these sorts of problems. Like you, you actually see that you get huge... Uh, what's the right word here? Cross-sectionally across the country, you'll get a whole lot of participation in some environmental um, issues when it's something that's beautiful or or culturally important that's threatened. So the people aren't yeah. so much cared about their clean water, but don't you dare ruin that pretty view or whatever, you right. know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but then like, if that's the case, then why not use it and explore it? Interesting. Um, so kind of switching gears a little bit, uh, and this is a fun question. Okay. But you mentioned that 
you were involved in some bands when you were younger. Most most of them were uh, punk folk or folk punk. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so that was my. You say I say younger. I mean, I, I did that all the way till I was thirty six. I mean, the band broke up in Lincoln because I left, basically. <laughs> uh, and then I did it in Chattanooga as well, and in Wyoming, actually. So, But the Wyoming one was much more strict old-time music. Um, and uh, so I played um, in the viola when I was in, like, high school and middle school and then okay. got a scholarship in college, which is not an instrument a lot of people know about, um, but it's the same exact mechanics as a violin. Um and, and so a folk band in Chattanooga asked me to play the viola on some other stuff. And then there was this one song where they wanted it to be a little higher and they asked for a violin. And so I had to borrow a violin to do this. And uh, it turns out people want violins more than they want violas. And I realized that if I wanted to play in bands that maybe I should switch over, but I refused to call it the violin. I was like, it's the fiddle. <laughs> and so I started playing the fiddle, which is a, di a different style of playing, but it's suited because I don't read treble clef, which is what all violin music was written in, so I did everything by ear. And um, and so I started playing, and let's see here, did that for a while, I even had an electric fiddle, we played in a band. Cool. Um, this was when I was at Wyoming, but the band was still in Chattanooga, well, one dude was in Chicago, and so we like would get together for the summers, and one summer we actually like toured the country. Um, playing in underground shows and whatnot. It's pretty fun. Um, and that was kind of punky because everybody else, I mean, I had the electric violin because everybody was plugged in. Mm -hmm. And we also had a, a banjo player. Um, and he was playing claw hammer banjo, which is what I play now. And then after that happened and I went into my um, PhD program, it turns out it's really boring to play the fiddle by yourself. And so I picked up a banjo. Just I didn't know anybody. You know, first two years of living in a place is always really awful, when, particularly when you're that age. Mm -hmm. So I just spent all my time playing music, and turns out I'm really good at the banjo. It took me years to figure the fiddle, years for the guitar, and I just picked up that banjo, and within a few months was, like, already able to play a lot of stuff. Nice. Um, and so, yeah, like fan, found some people to play with in, in Lincoln and to like just kind of like, you know, the way it works where I'm where I grew up, where people just have like porch sittings, you know, right. like you have sittings or parlor sittings with people. And um, and people don't do that in a lot of other places, much to my chagrin. <laughs> like, yeah, it'd be easier to play. I know, it'd be yeah. easier to find people yeah. if there was just like a weekly whatever, you know, and there's you got your pick of them where I grew up. And so, but I did some, find some people and then we started playing, like a group of, it was all girls started playing together, which was cool because I'd never been in a band with another female at all. It's kind of a male dominated thing, particularly in the punk world. And so it was all women. And then we ended up playing together for a while. And, uh, and so, yeah, that was a really, that was probably the best out of all of them. So I've been in like four or five bands, but the last one was the best. And that's where I played banjo, not the fiddle. Okay. So are there any recordings out there or YouTube videos? I, there's lots of YouTube videos, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. What was the name of the band? It was Boiled Crow. Boiled Crow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was a it was actually inspired by by me. I had I met this gentleman who kind of played music in some of that scene in the, in the Lincoln scene. And, uh, and I was just telling him cause he said he was going to try to hook me up with people. And I was just trash talking the scene. And I just kept saying, people here don't play music. They don't do blah, 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 all this stuff. And then he, he literally introduced me to the fiddle who ended up being the fiddle player in my band. And, 
and I had to, we call it eating crow, yeah, right? I yeah. had to eat crow. And when you look up the the etymology of that, it's that in very hard times people would eat crow and you'd have to boil it. And apparently it's foul. Mm. And uh, and yeah, and so it's just like eating something you really don't want to <laughs> eat, but you have to sort of thing. And yeah. so so that's what we named the band. That, that is a good name. I, I would imagine he maybe had some fun T-shirt designs or some cool uh, poster We never designs. made T-shirts. We, oh, did for, we did for the Cheater Alliance. I think that's the only band I was in that had T-shirts. Yeah. Got to get that merch out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, any other interests that you'd care to tell us about? Other interests? Uh, I don't know. Um, Seems like the uh, the band names alone uh, is a pretty good topic. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anything else? Seems like we've had the gamut with uh, other yeah. guests. So you never know what somebody might might do in their spare time that would make for an interesting story. Yeah. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's not the case for you. Yeah. Mostly, <laughs> when I have free time, I spend it trying to play music or you know doing yard work and whatnot i really like really like gardening um and hiking and things like that that's why it was really nice to move here from yeah it's a good spot yeah it's a really good place for hiking yeah um did did your garden turn out this summer i did not do my garden this summer because um my husband actually lives in um missoula montana because he's a researcher at the university there and because he does water research all of their stuff, all of their sampling, everything happens in the summer. And so, sure. you know, I was like, all right, you got to be there for the summer. So darn it. Guess yeah. I got to live in Missoula There's for three months. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I I spent most of the summer in Missoula and I just knew not to even try. The yeah. year beforehand, I'd spent like maybe a month in Missoula. So I did plant the garden and then had somebody come over and water it. But I didn't okay. even bother this year. And it was very sad about it. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. very sad that I didn't get tomatoes or green tomatoes or flowers. Well, there maybe you find something on, like, uh, Amazon or something where you can do, like, those the in-home greenhouse. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, those kit. things are stupid. <laughs> so when you're, uh, when you're um, uh, spending time in Missoula in that area, I mean, are, is it uh, outdoor stuff, band uh, performances? Uh, what, what do you get up to when you're out there? I've, I've been up to Montana a few times, and I like beautiful country. It's mm-hmm. very beautiful, so. mostly outdoors. All yeah. right. Yeah, I still haven't found people to play music with. Okay. Um, and then they're, no, they didn't have a lot of local. I mean, they've got a lo- good local metal scene, you okay. know, but that's not my scene, or at least <laughs> that's not my scene to go play in, right? All right. <laughs> uh, so, um, but no, yeah, mostly there it's the outdoors because that that's place is stuff. a really great, really great town for that. Yeah. I went to a, it's in Montana and Billings. There was a club that sold, you might like it. They sold original pieces of art from like the, the region. Uh, and then it was a coffee shop slash brewery. And then they had bands play. So it was like all these things rolled into one. It was really cool. That's and what I, all you need. And I love the cover band because they played songs by Ween. Oh, uh, well, that's is, always good. We, my which band, is out there. <laughs> Bold Crow played a weed song. We played uh, uh, Johnny on the Spot. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I cannot remember the name of the song. I've got it written in my notes app on my phone, but um, I was sitting there with my wife, and I was like, they just covered Ween. And she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to this point in the interview where we uh, ask you some, some quick-hitting questions. So the first thing that comes to the top of your head. Oh, okay. Allison, what's a favorite movie of yours? The Big Lebowski. Nice. Oh, classic. Yeah. That's a great pick. I don't know if anyone else has had that. But really? Because I always feel cliche when I say that. No, not, not, not <laughs> this had list. that one. I guess we've had a good variety, but, you know, it, 
not to sound too cliched, but that that kind of does tie everything together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does tie everything Zing. together. Yes, I, I think I've just—it's a comfort movie, and and it's also. Wow, it's just really fun to watch over and over again. I swear I still notice things I never noticed yep. on the first time. And I started watching it as a compulsion during the uh, build-up to the Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, the second one. Um, ah, okay. And, uh, and I was, like, not in school at that time, and there was a lot of war, you know, drum beating and all that. And I had this compulsion to watch the news. And of course, you know, this is when you just had bunny ears on your TV. Mm-hmm. So it was like three channels. Um, and so anytime I had this compulsion, I would just watch The Big Lebowski and I would just start it wherever I had stopped it. You know, <laughs> like it so I was watching it at 30 minutes at a time, but I did this for like two years straight. I don't know how many times I've seen that movie. <laughs> it's not a bad idea, really. Right? Cause Cause I kind of feel that no- that news compulsion, you know, especially yeah. the last five or six years mm-hmm. now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just... And I've been meaning to rewatch The Big Lebowski as it is. Yep. Well, the very <laughs> beginning, perfect. he's in the grocery store, and it's where GW's talking about, not GW, sorry, the original Bush. GHW. Yeah, GHW is saying, you know, this it's, it, this aggression will not stand, yeah. you know, and that's and he repeats the line later, and uh, yeah, oh, so man. that's why that's why I watched that movie. Well done. <laughs> Plus, there is some philosophy in it with. Uh, um, with with the uh, I think it's the German guy. He's a nihilist, right? Oh yes, it's, yes. It's he exhausting to believe in nothing. Yes, no, I love that line. He's like, he's a nihilist. He doesn't believe in anything, and he goes, oh, that must be exhausting. <laughs> such a great flip. That is such a great movie. I don't know why, but my favorite part is when Jeff Daniels is driving in his or the Big Lebowski. He's driving yeah. in his, or little well. And he's, and he's just beating on the, beating on the to roof dude, of the car. Dude, dude, is, yeah, to the, <laughs> to dude, the dude, CCR dude, song. Yeah, that is my favorite part in that movie, yes. and I don't know why. But well, it's, it's very just, great cinematography. I mean, it is a silly movie, but it's the Coen brothers. Yeah. So it is great cinematography. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. So what's a hidden talent of yours? I, apparently, I it's all he's described. All yeah. yeah, besides playing the banjo, the fiddle, and the guitar, uh, I'm a really good cook. Right so. on. Uh, so, uh, what, what's your? Do you have a, a customary dish like a um, like a standard? I guess. I'm just really good at making stir fries. Oh, nice. Um, and I don't know. I've been a vegetarian since I was 16, so I'm working up on 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> like, and you start out as a terrible vegetarian, and then you have to learn how to cook, especially if you live in the South in the 90s. <laughs> like, yeah. You, know, you don't get to eat out, and yeah. uh, and so I just became very good at it. And uh, it's not that I have a signature dish. I'm one of these people who never follows recipes. I read oh, about okay. four recipes before I want to make something I've never made before and then structure it in my head and understand the chemical, like, reactions that are behind it, like what the recipe's hanging on, and then make it up on my own. Oh, um, very yeah, nice. Yeah, because my dad did teach me, at least with baking and some cooking, like, all the chemistry behind it so that's important to know yeah to be able to get things to actually thicken or do specific stuff but yeah that's great and you want them to taste good yes and you want them <laughs> to taste good and also a thing that i didn't know other people can't do um is that i will sit and taste something and imagine another flavor in it and can generally get it and so like I, I'll do that all the time where I'll say, but imagine if this was in it and close my eyes. People are like, how are you imagining taste? And I'm like, I've been able to do this since I was a kid. I don't know. Interesting. Oh, that's a great skill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You might have to become a chef. No. 
<laughs> that's a brutal. My best friend's a chef. That's a yeah. brutal career with yeah. a lot of It'd be tough. alcohol abuse involved. So. Yeah, you always have to work nights yep. and weekends yep. and holidays. So yep. who wants to do that? Mm-hmm. Thin margins. <clears throat> Allison, what's the best advice you received as a college student? Oh, as a college student? Define college. Or what's the best advice you give college students? Um, and yeah, any whatever level of college student you might have been. Oh, I guess it'll take too long. <laughs> I guess, yeah, best advice. Uh, I guess I wasn't very, I was good at giving myself advice and not taking other people's advice. Um, oh, oh, maybe we turn it around then. Was there a piece of advice that you were given <laughs> and you didn't follow and were better for it yeah. for not following that advice? Oh, yeah, doing something for money. Um, like the whole philosophy thing, you okay. know. Why would you do that? Because, like, anything I wanted to do was going to be kind of risky. It was like, well, or history or sociology. You know, like, you mm-hmm. have to just go on to teach. You don't get right. good careers out of that. <laughs> um, I think the, the I mean, this is weird, but this is literally from middle school. And it's, like, the only piece of advice that I think I was given that, like, stuck with me through years and years. Because all the other stuff would take way too long. It's basically like, well... Let's sit down and read Nicomachean Ethics because Aristotle gave me some good advice. Um, you know, like, but it's, it takes forever. The best, uh, the best class book teachers, really. Part, yeah. part one of the 214 uh, part series. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so I've learned a lot from philosophy. Um, but in middle school, I had my orchestra teacher, I remember telling us one, one time that, because everybody was upset about something, and she goes, you are not going to remember any of this. <laughs> In five years, <laughs> like just, just like the things that are upsetting you right now. Oh yeah. Just like always put it in perspective, and I know that as middle most middle schoolers probably just brush that off, mm-hmm. but I like took it really seriously. Like that's got to be true, you know. Like she's right. That's got to be true. Like none of this actually matters, and and I shouldn't let it right. upset me as much. That's far too mature a thought for a middle schooler to have. Yeah, no yeah. Kidding. I was a weird kid. Um, <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Good Nothing on you. wrong Good with that. <laughs> Uh, is it my turn then? Uh, favorite yeah. favorite book or author? Or do we have to do we have to separate that into the philosophical and the non philosophical? Yeah, let's go with fiction because um, that's easier. I love Cormac McCarthy. Oh, good so. stuff. Got two new books I coming know, out. I Does saw he? that he has two yeah. new books. They're uh, related. Do, do they say if they're as dark as the road was? Uh, I don't think, I don't that, think that, they're that dark. That's actually okay. not his darkest book, man. Yeah. I, I, that's what I'm scared of. Blood Meridian. Is a Blood Meridian. Tough. That's the only one that I warn people away from. It's a little tough. I'm gonna have to be careful like, with that. I, yeah, I haven't. I've, I've just done uh, the road and No Country for Old Men, so I've I've got some more to read. Yeah, Sutri's really good. When I'm feeling safe enough to do so. Yeah, don't read Blood Meridian. Just don't. <laughs> well, now I have. It's bleak. To. No, it's I like really don't. Okay. It's like it's like because uh, I love Steinbeck too, like the Red yeah. Pony. Don't read it. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> I, um, my favorite Steinbeck is Cannery Row. Oh, I love that book. Yeah, I love that one. I and actually I, have one of the chapters almost memorized. Yeah, I read it to my dogs when I'm a little of, drunk. The, the point of view from the squirrel? The... No. Uh, this is the one where Pirate um, gives the candlestick um, to St. Francis and then sees a vision. 
because he's, oh, while he's preaching right. to his dogs. Yep. Yes. I love that chapter yeah. so much. It's been a few years since I've read it, but I remember that there's like a chapter told entirely from the point of view of a squirrel. <laughs> that Seems book appropriate. is so good. <laughs> it's a great book, and it's yeah. not very long. It's not very long, and it's one of those ones that you can read again and again. It doesn't ruin it. Whereas, like, right. you know, you read The Grapes of Wrath, yeah, you and you got to wait 20 years to yeah, <laughs> go back. You don't need to go back. Like... All right. Here's a deserted island scenario for you. You get to take five albums to listen to. There's a record player, CD player, a tape deck, okay, whatever. Okay, I'm so glad that you yeah, we have to that. Whatever like, type of media, only it. on the 8-track. Because <laughs> I always hated, well, I hated this question for two reasons. Like, I don't like picking favorites. And in the situation, the scenario is so far-fetched. And that, because I'm always like, well, what are you playing these things on? Like, you're on a deserted island. You're thinking like, too critically about this. I know, exactly. It, it's, I'm a it's, philosopher. it's connected to the coconut radio. It all works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Gilligan's Island. Um, yeah, I don't know. I really don't like picking favorite music. I have a large vinyl collection, and I don't like saying. I mean, the Rolling Stones is my favorite band. And there'd probably be at least two other albums in there. But then picking other stuff, that's just too hard. It is, oh, a, che- is it. it a cheat to be like, yes, and the uh, greatest hits album that has like no, yeah, <laughs> three I... albums worth on it. So that takes care of. When people ask often about the Rolling Stones, I just tell them that like, what's the, your favorite album of theirs? I always tell them Exile on Main Street, but that's by default because it's a double LP. Mm-hmm. So there's twice as many songs. Mm-hmm. Like if you split that album in half, then I wouldn't know how to pick it because then you've got like, now it's up against Sticky Fingers <laughs> and Beggar's Banquet, which have the same amount of songs you know but yeah yeah i wonder if, i wonder if bands do double albums anymore it doesn't seem like or musicians well, well the, yeah, but you have the to think format that limitations have been i was lifted about to say to yeah double lp was the limitation was there because of the fact that it was being pressed on vinyl right um and tapes i guess you still could but the quality was worse mm-hmm. if they tried to make them 100 and whatever minutes and so they those would be double as well but mm-hmm. cds no nah, you can because it's cheap, yeah, cheaper to do CDs and, and nobody eight, even, 80 minutes to a disc is possible with a CD anyway. Yep. And nobody really releases albums anymore anyway. I still like to buy the CDs just so I can rip them to my computer in a high definition, well, a high bit rate format. And yes, better quality. People <laughs> yeah. always say that because I still have a lot, well, all, almost all of my CDs. They're not in the things anymore. They're in books. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and people are like, why? You can get everything on Spotify. And I'm like, no, you can't. I am very, I'm very <laughs> obsessive on... I want to curate, even if I have it on random, it's still my random, yep. but I want to be able to curate my own playlist, whatever my mood is of the day, however I want to curate it. So yeah, I don't have any of the streaming services to how I don't even, I don't even know what's possible. And there's probably a lot possible that I am not aware of, but I do no. have them, but I also keep my music collection. Yeah. I want to be able to take it with me. <laughs> and then when I die and I'm buried in the pyramid and have all my, yeah. my hard drives with me. <laughs> well, I've realized the last, like, what, five years or so, you know, like, my vinyl collection is probably worth several grand at this point in time, you so know? <laughs> have you added to it? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I I never had a real vinyl collection because um, I'm young enough to have been on CDs for that. But, um, you know, new artist has something coming out. I'm like, well... Uh, I want to be able to get physical media. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I want to be in control of that. Well, and now they're, you know, uh, some of the artists, that's what they want. The only thing they will release in physical copies. Yep. And they're all doing it on the really heavy vinyl. Not all. Oh, yeah. And so you get really good sounding stuff. Like, I mean, it just sounds amazing if you have the right record player. Um, 
So did they, yeah. Did they ever perfect where it was a uh, a laser instead of a physical needle on the record player? I, I have no that, idea of exactly. That being I have... a discussion like twenty years ago and going, that would solve some problems. Well, it would solve wearing problems. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I need to look that up again. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds expensive. I like my Audio Technica oh. with the needle. <laughs> so. Yeah, we're talking five grand. Um, <laughs> but so I was having this conversation er, uh, last week. And I think your wife was there and some of the other faculty members. And it was on, like, CDs. I think we were talk- joking about, like, Halloween costume, dress up like it's the 80s and have a tape deck, have the Walkman. Mm-hmm. And th- I never quite got around to being able to voice the thought I had, which was, I miss where you're, you're, you're visiting somebody and you can look through the you know, you look through the binder full of discs mm-hmm. like we did in high school. Well, like we did in high school. Yeah. yeah. We seem to have lost that. Yep. Right? Except for eccentrics like Allison here yeah. who have a good physical media collection. Yes. So now, like, do you browse through their Spotify library? Is, I, is that a yeah, thing now? I, I would think. Yeah, I guess that's probably what it would be. I feel old. and I'm not that old. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, kids kids these days. But no, kids these days don't even listen to albums. Like, it's no, absolutely it's enraging. Songs, not the yeah. full Single of songs. The album. They yeah. don't even actually listen to a full song all the way through. I've learned this from traveling in vans with college kids. Yeah, like, if you hand them the, the controller, you know, like, let their phone sync to the radio, you're going to hear half a song and then a half a song and then half a song all at different volumes yep. for like four hours straight. It's Dang. the worst. Yeah, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, and yeah, and so then I generally have to put my foot down and be like, "We're going to listen to all of the Paul, of Paul's boutique all the way through, and you're just going to deal with it." Yeah, <laughs> great album. Yes, it is. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we should end as the High Plains Drifters. Um, <laughs> we found a nice place to visit, but a better place to rob. So thank you, Allison, for for joining us today. Uh, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you, and um, really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. No. Thanks. It was fun.